Fire Nation, as we grow our businesses, one of our biggest challenges that we will face is how to grow our team. That's why I brought on today's guest because he literally wrote the book on creating a dream team, and that is the name of the book, Dream Teams. So our guest today is the co-founder of Contently, one of Inc.'s fastest growing companies. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Wired, The Washington Post, Fast Company, Time, and GQ. And his first book, which he was actually on EO Fire to chat about, is Smart Cuts, and that has made him a highly sought-after speaker around the world on innovation and lateral thinking. Fire Nation, allow me to present Shane Snow. So Shane, here you are chatting once again with Fire Nation. You were episode 96, you're episode 682. Now you are post 2000 episodes and it's really exciting for me to bring you on because you've written the book on dream teams. And again, as I mentioned in the intro a little bit, one of the biggest questions that I get is, John, how do I build my team so I don't have to be the person doing all the things all the time? And I think that we're going to start off with a pretty interesting point here, which, you know, is, as you put it, the sad data, which is most teams actually perform perform worse than most individuals. So Shane, say what's up to Fire Nation and then break into why that's the sad, sad reality. What's up, Fire Nation? It's super great to be back and, uh, and great once again to talk with you, John. Um, so, okay, so the sad data... I mean, maybe I can start a little bit with uh, the most depressing way uh, to sort of get into the topic of teamwork. And one of the reasons why I got into it is I was sitting at a uh, a science presentation called Nerd Night many years ago. And uh, there's a scientist up on stage. And Nerd Night is kind of people get drunk and uh, and (laughs) tell scientists get drunk and give presentations. So there's drunk scientists who's up there. He's talking about uh, which will kill us first, the aliens or the robots. And I gave this whole presentation about what, you know, different people who study things think and AI and all this. They got down off the stage and, uh, and I grabbed his arm and I was like, hey, you know, by the time that the aliens showed up to get us, wouldn't it be their robots that already killed them? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, any aliens that show up will be the robotic AI descendants that killed those aliens. <laughs> but don't worry, because we're going to blow ourselves up with nukes long before that. And then he walks away <laughs> and it's like, holy crap. Uh, and, uh, and so this bothered me because my dad is a nuclear engineer and I grew up hearing this story and going and touring, you know, the, uh, the, uh, facilities he worked at and hearing this story about how all these scientists came together and crossed borders and, you know, Russians and Americans and New Zealanders and men and women, old people, young people to help us harness the atom and make this great source of energy. And, you know, and this is sort of the science story I grew up with. And, uh, and then kind of having this epiphany at this drunk nerd night that that same thing that put food on our table that, you know, my dad was convinced could help make the planet greener and help us power our cities uh, was also the thing that other scientists were convinced would be our demise. And, uh, and so I kind of freaked out about this and got obsessed in part because I was becoming a team leader. Uh, but I got obsessed with this paradox, which is that when humans come together, we either make amazing breakthroughs, you know, we invent the future, we build companies, we, you know, we harness the atom, or we destroy each other. And in fact, a lot of the breakthroughs we make, we end up using on each other. And so this got me looking at the, you know, kind of the, this paradox and, and why do some teams do amazing things and, and some teams suck. And it turns out that to my surprise that most teams actually uh, are, are worse off 
than people who just work on their own. Um, so, for example, studies show that when you put people in groups to, uh, uh, to do a tug of war, uh, you'll pull less hard on the tug of war rope if you're in a group of six than if you are by yourself. Um, if you are put in a group to shout as loud as you can, you'll shout 74% as loud in a group of 100 people as you will by yourself, even if you think you're shouting just as uh, you're doing your hardest. And then the worst one is brainstorming groups. All this research in brainstorming shows that uh, you put groups of people together to come up with ideas. You know, we, we have this sort of hallowed ritual of the brainstorm session. Any idea is a good idea. Um, turns out that uh, a brainstorming group, no matter how many people, no matter you know how great the people are, will come up with fewer ideas and fewer good ideas than if you just have those same people brainstorm by themselves at home. And uh, and so you know some of this is social loafing. You know the tug of war thing. You pull less hard because you know you know maybe you don't you feel like you don't need to. Some of this is coordination is tough, but some of this is just the the kind of the way that humans interact is our brains subconsciously want so hard to be accepted, to fit in, to belong to our tribes, to not be rejected by the group, that we have a harder time taking risks and uh, being vulnerable and, and even just thinking more critically when we're in a group uh, than we do when we're by ourselves. And, and I experienced this you know, kind of personally as I went as a, an entrepreneur, as a founder of a company to you know, the guy who does everything um, and is scrappy and all those things that you, know, you talk about on your show that you gotta do in order to, you know, to get launched. I went from that guy to the guy who had to pick people to do those things for me and then help them do those things better. And then I watched as, you know, the the more people we got, the less efficient we were and the more politics there were and the more fighting there was and how so-and-so, you know, is trying to sort of undermine so-and-so. And even though we have amazing, great people, these things just happen. And, and I started sort of stressing out about this at the same time I was stressing out about the, you know, the nukes that my dad helped build <laughs> blowing us all up. Um, but, you know, the reality is that most important things are too big for one person. You can't build a really big company with just one person. You need other people's help. You can't invent, you know, any scientific breakthrough without building on the shoulders of the giants before you or collaborating with other people. You can't clean a football stadium with one person, you know, in time for the next game. So this is sort of the, the sad truth that we, we have to endure the lost productivity. You have to endure sort of these social dynamics that, that make us suck a little bit more together because we need each other. Um, but the reason this matters and, and the thing that I'm super excited about with, with this book and you know the last four years of research into it is that every once in a while you see a group of people or maybe you've been part of one uh, that just defies all of that. That it's like you click and you, you're in this flow where somehow you add up to more than the sum of your parts. You know, and, uh, and I think anyone who's uh, you know, been a parent uh, you know, it, everyone that I know that's become a parent is just astonished by the amazing feeling of realizing that one plus one is equal more than two. And this happens sometimes in teams and, and throughout history, there's been amazing teams that have done this. Um, so I got kind of obsessed with studying what's the difference between those teams that become way more that fulfill the promise. We're all told that, you know, working together is better. Two heads are better than one. Those few teams that actually do that. What's the difference between them and the teams that, that don't do that, that you know, two heads equal one and a half, but we need one and a half because it's better than one or the teams that end up destroying each other, creating all these problems so that we point nukes at each other. To kind of sum this up, Fire Nation, you know, the sad data is that 
teams perform worse than most individuals for specific reasons, but there's a conundrum there because most of the important things are too big for just one person to complete on their own. So we need teams, but teams perform worse than just individuals by themselves. So there's the conundrum. This is exactly why this book, Dream Teams, is is critical because you kind of go through this process. And as you can already tell, this is why I love all of Shane's books because he tells the stories. He's a good storyteller. And that's what this book is. There's actually just one story after another story after another story that I can just relate to. But one thing I'm still a little unclear of, Shane, with what you were just chatting about is why do we pull less hard and why do we shout less loud when we're in groups? I mean, I know you said it's somewhat because of the fitting in situation, but is there anything more to that? The fitting in thing is much more powerful than people give credit to. Um, Even just being conscious uh, and knowing this data, it it still happens. Um, Part of it also is coordination. I think that's usually with well-meaning people, the biggest culprit. Is uh, is coordination? You know, it, you pull on the tug of war rope, but you have to. All, you're all sort of bunched together, and and you lose some efficiency in doing that. You know, big group will just move slower if you're running down the road. Um, but some of it also is, you know, that people are different. You know, we're not all the the same, and so because of that, I, I think that that kind of leads to the coordination thing. Um, people have different ideas of how things should be done, and you know, this is why. You know, think about how wars used to be fought. You know, the British redcoats, you know, marching in, you know, to uh, to fight Napoleon or whatever. Everyone lined up. You know, all the soldiers are the same. They wear the same outfits. They step exactly the same. They shoot exactly the same. Um, you know, it's these rows and rows of sort of uniform people. The reason we develop those kinds of things, the reason we develop assembly lines and all of that, is uh, is because of those inefficiencies that creep in when we have a big group of people. But it turns out that, you know, the army of British soldiers just all lined up being exactly the same is not the greatest, you know, most breakthrough way to do things. And it was really susceptible to guerrilla warfare. And, um, you know, so it, it, it's all kind of this paradox, right? Like, uh, you know, the, the other thing that happens is social loafing, you know, someone in the group of the tug of war rope kind of reduces the whole thing because they're like, well, there's, you know, Dwayne Johnson is in front of me, so I'm gonna pull a little less hard. Uh, you know, that happens too. Um, but yeah, I, I think we underestimate even people who have been told all these things. You put them in a room with a bunch of people, and uh, and they do a little bit worse, usually, not always. And there and there's a couple of things, and you know, I'm hoping we'll talk about. Um, but even if we know it, it still happens. Shane, I have this exercise where to find your big idea, you go through this process called the zone of fire, and that gets you to your big idea. So then when I saw your zone of friction, I really perked up and said, wow, this is going to be something pretty cool probably. And when I read a little bit more about it, I saw that it was the virtues of picking the right kinds of fights, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, you've kind of maybe heard your parents at one time say, you know, you got to pick and choose your battles. But like, what does this really mean as far as building teams and running a team and being a leader or part of a team as far as the zone of frictions involved? I'm so happy you asked about this. So when you look at patterns in history of game changes in any industry, you know, any kind of innovation is when the game changes, right? You look at when that happens. Um, it's never because people did the same thing, only more of it. It's never because you added more soldiers to that, you know, army of redcoats doing the same thing. And 
you know, so it happens when people think differently, which was the subject of the, the first book I wrote, Smart Cuts. Um, and so that inevitably leads to, well, how do you think differently? How do you come up with these game changes? And it turns out that one of the most reliable and most powerful ways to do that is something called cognitive diversity. It's basically when you get different ways of thinking, you smash them together. Uh, you know, this is a lot of people talk about creativity being this sort of thing. But so what happens is uh, the difference between teams that break down and that break through is that the teams that break down are the ones that have so their differences, the different ways of thinking or their different priorities or whatever it is, uh, go to war and they destroy each other. Or people are so afraid of those differences that they hold back. Um, and so there's kind of this two ends of this spectrum of, you know, we're engaging our different ways of thinking. Uh, on the one end is destruction, on the other end is inertia. This is kind of the problem with every with corporate America, basically. This is a problem with most teams. Um, and uh, And we're afraid of fighting and of friction and of too much conflict because uh, you know, it puts us at risk uh, evolutionarily, right? We want to belong to the tribe. We don't want to get kicked out. We don't want to take a risk that gets everyone killed. Um, so we have this, you know, trepidation about this. But when you look at the history of innovation, innovation happens in this sweet spot, in this zone in the middle, where you have different ways of thinking and doing things, perspectives and heuristics and predictive models and all these stuff that psychologists talk about. Um, when those things rub against each other, when they go to war, that's when magic happens. So a lot of times we have groups of people, you know, we build teams, uh, we build companies, and, and we want people to fit, you know, a certain culture, we want people to fit a certain way of doing things, because then we're not going to have war. We're going to have peace, and we're going to be able to work together and, you know, move forward, which is great, except, you know, we lose productivity along the way and blah, blah, blah. But also, a group like that is only going to be as smart as its smartest member, a group that thinks similarly, right? It just makes sense. Uh, but a group that has many different types of heads, different types of thinking that engage with each other has the potential to become smarter than the smartest person in that group. And so that, that's where the zone of friction comes in. And I think the best way to illustrate it um, would be one of my favorite stories from history of, uh, of two guys that, you know, on the surface are actually quite similar. Two brothers who were a couple of engineers who, uh, they, you know, they're quite similar because they're brothers, uh, but they're also not afraid of getting each other's face and fighting because they're brothers because they knew they could always make up. Uh, one brother was, uh, was really sort of impetuous and loud and kind of, you know, creative and, and, and a little bit crazy. And the other was more cerebral and, you know, kept very clean notes and great handwriting and and, uh, you know, was, uh, was more of the logical one. Um, but they were both great engineers. So when they'd work on projects, uh, they would get into these big fights, these big debates from their different perspectives. And, uh, you know, they'd argue about things and argue about things. And, and their assistants in their shop used to kind of get worried. And the neighbors would hear screaming from, you know, outside the windows. And, uh, and then what they'd do is every day at lunch, they'd be in one of these fights about how to design something. And they'd, they'd take lunch and they'd stop and they'd eat their sandwiches together. And then they'd go right back to fighting after lunch. But what they'd do, and, and this is why I love this story, is that after lunch, they'd say, all right, let's switch sides of this argument. You have to argue my side. I got to argue your side. And they'd go back to yelling and fighting and, um, you know, and really letting each other have it. 
And, uh, and this might sound like a hostile work environment, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> Didn't you say that like people would walk by outside and they'd be like, man, those people are just screaming at each other yeah. all day long. Be like, what is going on? Yeah. You know, uh, I actually, I ran into someone who is like the great granddaughter of one of the shop assistants. I randomly ran into her at a, a conference and she was like, oh yeah, in my granddad's journals, he, you know, he wrote about how, you know, he and, and, and the rest of the gang were worried that they were going to, you know, hit each other or strangle each other. Um, but so it might sound hostile until you learn who they are. These two guys, uh, their names were Orville and Wilbur Wright, the inventors of human flight. It turns out that this was their process because they knew that they were similar enough, they had similar training. This was their process for unlocking different thinking, um, that they would have these really fiery debates. And uh, in order to make sure that they didn't kill each other, they switched sides of the base, which is really clever. Um, but they always wanted to be in this zone where their ideas could do battle and, uh, and where it was just the ideas doing battle. So, you know, it didn't blow over to that other side of the, you know, the spectrum into destruction. Um, and this becomes, I think, a really great analogy for any time you see uh, innovation happen. It's either ideas in your head doing battle to become something that no one ever thought of. Or more often than not, it's different people bringing their ideas to do battle and actually letting them smash together, actually trying to poke holes in the ideas until something emerges that's, that's bigger and better. Um, and so I think picking the right kinds of fights, you know, when you ask about that part, what that's about, I, I think primarily is, is what I just said, is that our fights need to be about ideas and not about individuals and getting personal. And this is where, you know, political debates and, and a lot of debates at work actually end up going off the rails. You start losing the fight or losing the debate and your ego is, you know, attached to your side of things. And so, uh, you know, you make it personal. You say, well, you know, you didn't do X, Y, Z or well, so-and-so was a douchebag and, you know, whatever. And, and it gets, uh, the, the thing turns into, a, instead of a war of ideas, um, a war of, of people. And, uh, you know, in, in the book, I write about how this is how, you know, hip hop emerged was every week, you know, in the Bronx, the DJs came. And, yeah, the Wu-Tang Clan literally was built on the idea that you showed up and, you know, there was a track and you had to, to fight for it and battle for it. And if you lost, you didn't come back next week with the same <laughs> thing. And, uh, you know, and, and, and you didn't come back next week with a gun to go kill the other person. You came back with better ideas. And this is how the form was innovated and, and, and created all this stuff. And actually hip hop, you know, the gun thing, it turns out that it, you know, at a per certain point, it did come a war. People yeah, did start Tupac and Biggie and exactly. get into all of that. It's just really fascinating stuff as Shane really dives into the stories behind these things. And Fire Nation, let me challenge you right now. Try switching sides the next time you're fighting with somebody. You know, you're fighting with them, you're arguing, maybe it's with a significant other, a loved one, a family, a friend, somebody on your team. Stop and just say, all right, let's switch sides. And then might be like, what are you talking about? Be like, just trust me. Now you take my side, I'll take your side, and let's keep the, the argument going and let's see what happens. And now you're just like not defending for the sake of defending, which is, you know, you're just doing it beforehand because you've already entrenched your position. Now you got to make an argument for the other side. And guess what? Your mind might open up and make that happen. That's why when I was in law school, we would always do that. We would have to just be given a random topic. We'd flip a coin and then we'd have to be the prosecutor or the defender on one side of that. Like we would to know until right before. And it's just a very interesting way to open your mind up. And 
Fire Nation, as Shane's kind of going through and talking about this stuff, I just want to share that the images that he shares in his book are super cool. I mean, I actually, Shane, took a picture of your six cups of milk exercise and I shared it on my Instagram feed and I challenged people to to figure it out. And people were so, they're like, oh, what's the answer? I can't figure it out. But like, that's the kind of entertaining read this is, Fire Nation. It's not just like words on a page, but he tells stories. There's images, there's challenges. There's all these really cool things. It just, just really makes this an absolute page turner. And we're going to be talking about something very cool when we get back from thanking our sponsors. If you're an e-commerce marketer who is having a difficult time understanding the direct ROI of your marketing campaigns, I get it. It can be frustrating. The good news is if you can put your already existing data to work in order to make more meaningful interactions happen with your customers, then you will win. How do you do that? With Klaviyo. Klaviyo helps e-commerce marketers save time and make more money through super targeted, highly relevant email and advertising campaigns. The best part is there's no need to hire an army of developers to access and translate your data for you. All you have to do is integrate your store with Klaviyo's and then it will bring together all of your data in one place, making it easy for you to create campaigns that drive results. That's why thousands of e-commerce companies use Klaviyo to increase their sales. And right now you can sign up for free at Klaviyo.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. So Shane, we're back and let's be honest, you and me, but also since Fire Nation's listening, we'll be honest with them as well. There's always going to be people who we don't like, and there's always going to be people who really just aren't like us. So how do we depressurize tension so that we can work with people who are not like, or how so that we can work with people that we frankly just don't like? How can we depressurize that tension? The answer to this is going to sound dumb or simple or simplistic. Psychologists have found over the last, really over the last 30, 40 years, but especially over the last few years, that the number one thing that you can do to depressurize tension between people who are suspicious of each other, who don't like each other, or who are, you know, don't want to work together, uh, there, there are two things really, but the number one thing is to get them to play together. And play, it turns out, is a key part of how we survived and learned to collaborate and 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 gain empathy for each other i mean just uh, look at puppies exactly animals do it too yeah exactly you know baby tigers will you know practice hunting they'll play hunt together right you know because they're learning these survival skills um but they also do it to develop uh camaraderie among other uh other baby tigers gorillas do this they play tag lemurs do this um and it turns out that this is part of how human beings can depressurize uh, you know, this kind of built-in suspicion of people who are different than us. Um, play is sort of a simulation of a real-life thing um, that, that is safe, right? Uh, one scientist uh, that I, I quote in the book called it a simulation of an anxiety attack. You know, you have something where there's, there's something at stake, and if this were real life, you know, that could be life-threatening or it could be, you know, uh, injurious somehow. Um, but in play... You're sort of in this magic circle where uh, nothing, the worst that can happen is nothing. You know, you lose the game. Um, and so study after study after study shows that you put two people uh, together and put them on the same team, uh, two people who don't get along. And at the end of the game, whether it's basketball or chess or, you know, World of Warcraft or my favorite is improv comedy. Um, 
And afterwards, those people who are suspicious of each other will walk out and the sort of lingering effects of being on the same team uh, remain. And you start to see each other as part of the same, uh, same tribe. Even if you compete, you play a game against each other, you'll walk out of that game less afraid. And uh, a story that I, I don't have in the book, but that I, I love, uh, I'd love to share of how this happened surprisingly to me. It's one, one time a few years ago, I, uh, I was in uh, Philadelphia for a conference. The night before the conference, I went out with my friend and her sister. And uh, we went to some bar and there was uh, something on the menu called a mind eraser. I didn't know what it was, but it sounded cool. And I drank it, and then I don't remember anything <laughs> until the next morning when I woke up on some couch in South Philly. So I wake up on this couch. You know, I'm an investigative journalist, so I look for context clues. I'm like, nope, this is not my friend's couch. Uh, I don't know where I am. So I leave the apartment. I kind of freaked out. And, uh, and you know, everything was fine. But, uh, you know, at 6 in the morning, I don't know where I am. So I walk into this Starbucks, which happens to be the only place open to kind of like regroup, get my bearings and, you know, scold myself for being an idiot. And um, I walk into Starbucks, I get a tea and I sit down and the only other person in Starbucks across the way is this big, hulking, homeless man. Uh, long, curly fingernails, this gray beard, you know, long hair. The guy, you know, he hasn't, his clothes haven't seen the inside of a washing machine and, you know, who knows how long. And he's staring at me. And this is not someone that's part of my team, part of my tribe, not someone I'm going to just hang out with um, or talk to or whatever. Um, and, uh, and he's staring at me and he looks down and at his table is a chess set. And, uh, and he just, with his eyes, looks at me, looks at the chess set, does that a couple times. And, you know, blame it on the hangover or whatever. But somehow I find myself walking across this Starbucks, sit down with this homeless man to play chess. And long story short, he kicks my ass. Uh, he's a great <laughs> chest. And so afterwards, but, you know, during this game, you know, he doesn't talk at all. And I'm, I'm talking to him. I'm trying to, you know, converse because I'm nervous because uh, guy is huge and homeless. And, you know, and, uh, and, you know, he has these scary fingernails and, he, you know, moves to pieces. And when it, whenever he puts me in check, he just makes a check mark with his finger, you know. And when I put him in check or ask him questions, he just like smiles, you know, and doesn't say anything. And, uh, and so he, he finally, he beats me in chess, but by the time he beats me, I kind of love this guy, you know, he's like such a character. Uh, so interesting. I'm starting to wonder, you know, how, what is he doing at six in the morning at this Starbucks? Um, you know, uh, how did he end up like this? And, uh, and why is he so good at chess? So he kicks my ass in chess. And then afterwards I pull out my wallet to give him, you know, a $5 bill. Cause I assume that's what he wants. And, uh, and he like, you know, he waves his gross fingernailed hand at me to like, no, put the put the money away. He doesn't want the money. And, uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, uh, that was really cool. Uh, can I, you know, can I at least shake your hand? And he's, he you know, gives me his hand and shake. And I was like, so my name's Shane. You know, can you tell me, tell me your name? And, and the only words I ever hear this man say in my whole life, yeah, like an octave higher than you expect. <laughs> he says, call me Grandmaster. And I'm like, if I knew your name was Grandmaster, I wouldn't have played this game of chess with you. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. And then he smiles. He doesn't want any money. And I walk out. And, and on the walk out, I'm so happy. You know, I'm scared. I'm nervous going into this encounter with this guy. But I feel like, you know, I kind of made a friend there. And if I were to see him on the street, I would say hi to him. You know, whereas before, you know, he's, he's someone that is not in my tribe. You know, I would not say hi to him. 
And this is the power of play. It was a little game of chess where we didn't even speak. And, and this happens, there's all sorts of great research on, you know, and companies that have their employees play intramural sports together or take improv classes together or they insert humor and little games. These all help people to depressurize situations that, that can be tense. You know, work can be tense. You know, we have debates and problems and, and things to work out and disagreements. And if you insert humor, get people to laugh about the thing that is so intense, it makes it less tense. And you can actually talk about the ideas rather than resorting to, you know, undermining each other or avoiding things. And if you can get people to play together, they'll walk out of those games feeling like it's safe to express your full point of view on something. It is safe to debate or argue because you're on the same team at the end of the day. Fire Nation, I have two words, trust falls, make it happen. And (laughs) Shane, let's be honest with each other. Let's be honest with Fire Nation. Most of us, we hate criticism. You know, we hate critics and we try to stay as far away from them as we possibly can. But as I learned while reading your book, this could be a mistake. So I kind of want to talk next about agitation, about how maybe working with your worst critics could actually help you get better. So if you are in a situation where you personally or your team have found something that works, good solution to whatever you're doing, uh, you're likely to stick with it. That's just kind of how we do things. And that's when you know we're likely to get passed up by someone who has changed the game and, and gotten better at things. That's what disruption is, is about. So you know, often we, we have a good thing going and the thing that holds us back from more success is that the fact that we don't have other points of view, other different ways of thinking. Um, and, you know, I get into all sort of the, uh, the kind of the technical facets of this in the book. Um, but sometimes all we need to get thinking more critically is a little push, but, you know, getting a little push is never comfortable being pushed, you know, into the ravine between two mountain peaks so that you can climb up the higher one. That's not fun. So, uh, you know, this thing called agitation, provocation that I, I read about is, uh, is the idea that having those kinds of, the kinds of people who can push you, who can nudge you, who can irritate you into, uh, you know, making progress are often very useful to your team. And, uh, there's, there's all sorts of great research about, um, that sort of concludes, this is the conclusion, um, that we should consider our critics our provocateurs, our whistleblowers, the people who are just plain annoying, we should consider them a crucial part of our teams if we want to solve problems better. But again, you know, it's, it's sort of annoying and it, it's tough. But let me give you an example, not in the book, but from my own life again. Um, a couple of years ago, I wrote this blog post that was fairly controversial. And uh, you know, it was about you know, what if we, uh, you know, we started feeding uh, prisoners in prison soylent this nutritious, more nutritious than like the, some of the food they give prisoners. And what if we gave them all Oculus Rifts so that they can not have to, you know, get shanked in real life, but they can interact in virtual reality. So it's sort of this wackadoodle idea. But I wrote this blog post about this. And suddenly a couple months later, this article shows up in the Atlantic, destroying me, some MIT professor, he's destroying me over this blog post. He's like, this is so uninformed. There's people who study prisons and blah, 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 and and represents everything that's wrong with tech. And at first, I was like, I was devastated. I was like, someone's torn apart this thing that wasn't really that important to me. It was a thought experiment, but also it feels really personal. And I'm really upset. And, And I've decided I hate this guy. 
And my friends, you know, who all like me and don't know this guy, they're like, yeah, what a jerk. And like, he seems like a creep and they're making fun of him and all this to make me feel better. But none of this is helping, you know, actually feel better. And, and I'm, you know, I'm just sort of digging in my heels on my point of view on this, you know, blog post that I, I hadn't cared that much about. So uh, fumed for a week. And then finally, I wrote this guy an email. And uh, after I sort of calmed down, because uh, I wanted him to retract this article, you know, uh, that was so mean about me. I didn't want him in my Google search results. And so I made all these points in this email where I was like, hey, you're wrong about some of the, the things that you brought up. Here's data to show. Um, and to like kind of throw him a bone, I was like, you know what, you're, you're, you're right about these couple of things and thanks for you know, helping me to change my thinking. Uh, not really meaning it, but just to, you know, hoping that I'll take the article down. And he writes me back this incredible note where he's like, thank you for, you know, I do this all the time, thank you for, for engaging with me and let's talk about some of these ideas. And you know what, I'll retract some of the things that you point out that I'm wrong about, but you know, the point still stands, so let's talk about this. We start this email back and forth, you know, debating these ideas that basically turns into agree to disagree on some things, uh, having, we both sort of change our minds on some things, and he invites me to go hang out at his class at MIT to talk about this stuff sometime, uh, to, to bring the debate you know, to his students. So then a couple months later, and I feel much better about this, and uh, a couple months later, I'm writing another article that's uh, actually important <laughs> uh, to me. And I think the prison system is important and we have a lot of things that we need to fix about that. But, but an article that to me personally was actually important. And, uh, and I was like, this is going to be controversial. So, you know, have some friends look at it, have an editor look at it. Uh, and then I was like, you know what? I'm going to email this guy who hates me, hates my stuff and ask him to tear it apart before I publish it. So I email him <laughs> like, Hey, would, would you look at this article that I am pretty sure you're going to hate? And he says, with pleasure. And uh, so I send it to him and he, he writes back really thoughtful notes from the point of view of someone who, who sees the world very different than me. And, uh, and I use those notes to make the article better, change my point of view on some things and to just shore up argument against arguments that I know will be coming. And, uh, and, and then I get an email from him saying, hey, I have a blog post that I'm about to put up. Would you mind looking at it and giving me notes? And, and so I did. And guess what? It's like that, you know, that scene where this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This guy who does not think like me, he does not agree with me. And I can now, if we want, ask each other to be the critic, the teammate that can show us what we don't want to see, can tell us what we don't want to hear so we can make our work better. And I think that's, if we think of, you know, not everyone's going to be up for that. No, not everyone's going to be amenable to that. Some people just are pure jerks. But if we think of those people, whether they're real jerks or whether they just disagree with us, as helpful, and we think of you know dissent and negative feedback and criticism as not about us, but we, we sort it so that it's about our ideas and, uh, and remove our ego for a minute, and if we in fact invite it, which this is one of the things that I love about, uh, I'm a big Ben Franklin fan. Ben Franklin talked about how whenever he'd say something that was a strong opinion, he liked to preface it with, I could be wrong, so tell me how I'm wrong, but <laughs> I think this. And by just doing that, or even in your head doing that, saying I could be wrong, or you know, like I invite people to give me their point of view so that I can change my point of view if necessary, that basically takes the ego a little bit out of the equation and helps us to think of, of people's dissenting ideas as potentially useful um, for our work. So that's you know, when I talk about agitation, provocation, critics, um, if we can reframe that, and it is not easy, uh, it's amazing how much better we can get at what we do.
So you use the phrase digging in your heels about your viewpoint and Fire Nation. That's kind of the one thing that I really want to highlight here is that's what we do as human beings. Like when somebody criticizes us, it just makes us more entrenched in our own situation, in our own position. And it makes us just want to fight it to the death, which is why going back to an earlier story, changing sides can be so incredibly eye-opening because it takes you out of that digging in your heels mentality and puts you into the other person's shoes and see where they're coming from. And it can just really be a healthy, healthy exercise. So Shane, you've been telling us some great stories. I really appreciate that you've told us a few that aren't in the book. So that's super cool. But why don't we end with one of your favorite stories? Tell us one story. And again, this could be from one in the book because you've written a lot, or this could be one that's not. But just what is a story that you think is going to maybe wrap up the whole premise that we're talking about today, which is building a dream team? Tell us the story, and then uh, we'll kind of end on a high note and tell everybody uh, where they can find out more about you. This story is from the book. Um, but it's one of my favorites, and I think it should be a movie. If someone doesn't make a movie out of this, I'm going to make a movie. Well, Steven Spielberg does actually listen to this podcast. So, Steven, you did a great job with Ready Player One. I know you're looking for a new project. So, uh, here, Shane, take it away. There it is. And and I, I want Ryan Gosling attached. That's okay. <laughs> is he playing you um, in this movie, by the way? Yeah. yeah, yeah he'll Okay. And Rachel McAdams is your love interest, correct? Please. Got please. It. Check. Um, okay. So uh, in history class, in U.S. history, we learn all about the U.S. Revolution, the Civil War, World War II. Uh, and, the, you know, usually in history class, they say, and there was a war in 1812. And that's it. But the story of the War of 1812 is, I think, one of the best examples, the best sort of meta examples wrapping up uh, what it takes, what it, it means to be a dream team. Because in the War of 1812, uh, we had a, an army on the U.S. side with 7 to 1 odds that beat an army with 10 to 1 casualties. The American side was outnumbered 7 to 1? Yep, 3,000, and I'll get into the story because it's great, but 3,000 people on the American side defending the last city that the British had to take in order to take over America. Oh. 3,000 people against 20,000 British soldiers. Because everybody just thinks that, hey, 1776, we repulsed the British and that was it, but you're saying it wasn't it. Wasn't it? So what happened? And the ten to well, I'll, I'll get to the ten to one casualty <laughs> thing. So what happened is uh, War of 1812 started because uh, the British decided they wanted to pay themselves back for some of the you know the losses they got during the revolution. They fought all these wars there, you know. So they they started uh, picking up U.S. ships that were importing and exporting and taking their stuff. And this was a time when it was legal, kind of in every country and worldwide to uh, raid another country's ship if you happen to be at war with that country. Um, and, uh, and we weren't at war with, with England, so they started doing this, and, uh, and we got upset. And they would take people that had British accents, and they'd conscript them into the British Navy. If you were caught on a ship, you sounded British, boom, you're in the Navy. Uh, so this was upsetting, obviously, and uh, it was more complicated than this, but, but this is basically what happened. Thomas Jefferson, for all his great penmanship on the Declaration of Independence, was really bad at foreign policy. And his policy for dealing with this was to just uh, ban all imports and exports. So no more ships coming in and out of America. Then they, the British can't get them. And this destroyed the economy. So that happened. And then to save money, he got rid of the military, uh, which uh, turned out to be a bad move because then the British were like, you know what? Uh, they have no military. They're poor. <laughs> Everyone's unhappy there. Let's just take them back. So that's basically what happens. The British came burnt down Washington, D.C., 
they you know started raiding all these cities along the east coast and uh and the plan was to uh to sail up the mississippi and have a land invasion from the west meet uh, and basically push the americans into the sea where the british navy had just control of the whole east coast and then uh you know northern states already wanted to join england because they were upset about all this um and they figured they'd get america to surrender and and the reason we don't have the queen on our fiver is because there was one city left that the city was blocking access to the Mississippi, uh, New Orleans. And New Orleans uh, was this sort of raucous port town, um, classic place where lots of immigrants from lots of places around the world had found a home where they could be misfits together, um, which turns out to be a theme of this story and the Dream Team's idea. So, uh, so New Orleans is the only town left. Uh, the British Navy is is uh, coming to to go take it over. And there's a, uh, a group of local heroes in uh, New Orleans that uh, New Orleans is, is a happy place during all this because they have imports and exports because of these local heroes, the Pirate Brothers Lafitte. So Jean and Pierre Lafitte and their older brother, Dominique Yu, who uh, uh, was out in the Caribbean, they had this smuggling operation going. So Jean Lafitte was kind of the, the brains and, uh, and sort of this fancy man about town. And uh, his brother Pierre ran this shop where they would sell rum and rugs and all these things. And Dominique would go out and basically plunder boats in the Caribbean, and they'd smuggle them in through the swamps. So New Orleans basically said, y'all can do this. Uh, just don't tell us where the stuff comes from as long as we have rum. So it's you know, it this, you know, this sort of land of criminals going on. Um, and the British, when they showed up to, to go take over, to go you know, conquer New Orleans and go up the Mississippi, they went to the pirates and said, hey, we'll pay you $2 million to guide us through the swamp so we can surprise attack the city. And, uh, and Jean Lafitte agreed. And then because he's a pirate, he went and told the city that this was going to happen. Um, so, uh, so everyone freaked out. And, uh, and they had to assemble an army really fast to defend against this, uh, you know, this last-ditch attempt to save America, basically. The only guy that was around that could uh, you know, guess. Uh, def- guess. Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson. I was an American studies major. That's my claim to fame. (laughs) Well, so, you know, Andrew Jackson was not, you know, anyone's top pick for this job. Um, He was a jerk. Uh, He was good at military strategy, but he was very stubborn. He had one way of doing things. And, um, you know, sound like anyone you know. Uh, So Andrew Jackson gets a call. He's the only guy around uh, that can, can lead this defense. And he shows up to New Orleans, and he's like got dysentery, and you know no one likes him, and it's like this terrible situation. The British are coming, and he has to assemble this army. So he gets a bunch of uh, Tennessee hunters that he brings with him from the South uh, that have never seen war, but they're good shots uh, with really slow loading guns. And uh, he gets the city's you know lawyers and businessmen and a, a contingent of local whores to all kind of make ammo and practice with guns. Uh, there's a uh, a group of uh, of freed slaves and uh, and free men of color from the the Caribbean who were living in New Orleans that uh, that had a little militia. He uh, he promised to pay them if they join up, and uh, and then there was a a group of uh, of Choctaw Braves that for whatever reason, because uh, you know they had every reason not to like Andrew Jackson, um, he convinced them to join up as well. So he assembled the most diverse ragtag army in history uh, to, to defend the city against these 20,000 British troops. And at the last minute, you know, when he was like, uh, this is not going to work, we, we, we got nothing. This is, you know, we're just going to get slaughtered. Um, 
uh, a lawyer shows up. It's kind of like the Saul Goodman, if you ever watch you know, Breaking Bad. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like the Saul Goodman of the day. He shows up and he says, my client happens to own a lot of cannons. Uh, and he and his, uh, his merry men could uh, help in this engagement. And Jackson said, who is it? He said, Jean Lafitte, the notorious pirate, and his men. And so he persuades him to, to let Jean Lafitte become co-strategist, co-commander of the, of the defense. So British show up, and uh, you know the details of this story are just so fantastic. I, maybe you should let people uh, read uh, the book. But basically what happens is they combine the fighting tactics of the American Indians, the Choctaw Braves. They teach the, these Tennessee hunters how to do guerrilla warfare. Uh, the pirates teach the, uh, the free men of color, the militia, um, a bunch of really sneaky things about how to use pirate cannons and then the free men of color teach the pirates how to man a wall. They build a you know big dirt wall. Um, and they all kind of adopt each other's different fighting strategies and heuristics. So when the British show up and they have nice clean lines um, to you know just roll over these guys, this ragtag army obliterates them. And, uh, and it, it was just so incredible. No one, they, even they, they, they thought they were all going to die. And uh, it turns out that there were 333 casualties on the New Orleans side after the first day of fighting, you know, people injured or, or killed. And there were 3,500 casualties on the British side wow. just in that first day. So 10 to 1, more than 10 to 1. So after, after that first day, well, it's kind of the, the first charge, really. There, there's a lot to the story. But after that first charge, the British were like, holy crap, this is not going to work. At this rate, we we're all going to die. And so they retreated, tails between their legs, and went back to England. And, uh, and America was saved. And New Orleans threw a big party, and it's still a nonstop party. <laughs> and the lesson uh, that you learn is, you know, Andrew Jackson, he hated Creoles. He hated the you know, the, these people of, of mixed blood that lived in New Orleans. He hated pirates. He hated criminals. He was hardly on the right side of history when it came to American Indians or black people. Uh, you know, he was a slave owner and, and all that. Um, and yet he, he managed to get all these people to come together, you know, to save their city, uh, to, you know, to put their differences aside for, you know, for a, a moment um, and work together. And, you know, the British were, were all unified and uniform and well-trained and obedient and all the same. And they were destroyed by this army. And so kind of the lesson here is sort of the meta lesson when you look at great teams in history is that, you know, we think that, uh, you know, the, the key to success is getting past our differences. That the key to getting people to work together and, and be great together is to, to deal with our differences and get past our differences. Well, I'd posit, and stories like this show us that it's true, that maybe the key is our differences that who we are and our different ways of doing things and seeing things when combined can make us greater than we can be on our own. So that's, that's the story. That's my favorite. Wow. Well, I have absolutely bookmarked that story in the book because I haven't got there yet, but I believe the title is called Welcome to Pirate Lands. Is that correct? It is indeed. Yes. <laughs> oh, chapter six. I will be reading that very shortly. And Fire Nation, I hope you are as fired up about these different stories and about how you can use this knowledge to build your dream team and understand you know, what it means to actually change sides and to embrace your critics, not to just be repelled by them and all these different things. So many great lessons, so many great takeaways. And Shane, let's end today on fire with you giving us 
one parting piece of guidance, then share the best way that we can connect with you. And of course, your biggest preferred method of us picking up the book Dream Teams. And then we'll say goodbye. One of my favorite quotes, I don't know where it came from, um, but it's about, uh, it, it comes from the story of, of one of the, the greatest physicists of our time, Richard Feynman, who uh, was known as being this groundbreaking physicist despite having a relatively low IQ. He couldn't do all this crazy math in his head, and yet he broke all this ground, changed the world, and, uh, and because he was to collaborate with other people to do the math, and, uh, and, and actually think about things differently. So the quote that I like and the parting piece of advice, the thing to remember is, uh, is that being successful in leadership, in entrepreneurship, in life, in team building, it's not about how strong we are. It's not about how smart we are. It's about how flexible we are, our ability to consider different things and, and actually uh, try them out, to be curious. And so the quote is that genius has less to do with the size of your mind than how open it is. So that's the parting advice. And, uh, and I guess if uh, anyone wants to find me, I'm just shanesnow.com. Um, dream Teams is shanesnow.com slash Dream Teams. And, uh, and I, I, you can also just Google my name, hardly anyone. I think there's a hockey player and, uh, <laughs> and someone in prison that also have my name. So I'm the one that, that's not, neither a sports hero nor in jail. And you know, that's actually why I use my middle name. So when I first started back in 2012, I Googled John Dumas and there's this like 50 or 60 year old Indian flute player um, who played this large wooden flute whose name was John Dumas. And he had all the social media handles, johndumas.com. And I'm like, huh. So I'm like, I guess let me, let me Google John Lee Dumas. And like nobody came up and I'm like, all right, I guess that's where I make my steak. (laughs) So, so the only person that calls you John Lee is your mother when she's mad at you. I feel like, you know me. So Fire Nation, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And hello, you've been hanging out with SS and JLD today. So keep up the heat. And of course, head over to eofire.com. Type Shane in the search bar and the show notes page will pop up from today's episode. But of course, from episode 96, I mean, he was pre 100. Now he's post 2000. Um, Also episode uh, 682 was an amazing episode. You can check it out. All three of them will come up when you type in Shane Snow over at eofire.com. So definitely check that out. And I'm telling you, I'm on chapter three right now of Dream Teams. I've really been enjoying it. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter six because I, I just love history. So that story really got me fired up about Andrew Jackson. Then I'll go back and do chapters four or five and then the rest of the book. But it's a great book, Fire Nation. By the time you hear this, I will have read it all and uh, definitely applied a lot of its learnings to myself and my team. So check it out, shanesnow.com slash dream teams. And Shane, thank you for sharing your journey with Fire Nation today. For that, brother, we salute you and we will catch you on the flip side. And I salute back. Catch you later. Well, there you have it, Fire Nation. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Shane Snow. And if you feel like your morning routine could improve just a little bit, just a hair or maybe a lot, check out my new daily podcast, The Daily Refresh. I share one quote to inspire your mind. I share one piece of unique gratitude to warm the soul. And then I share a guided breathing exercise to energize your body. So one quote, one thing to be grateful for in one minute of guided breathing. And I'm telling you, it will change your life because it will massively improve your morning routine 
and you will be on fire. So visit thedailyrefresh.com and I will catch you there or I'll catch you on the flip side.